some weeks back, Pastor asked me if I would speak this morning, and I really want to thank Pastor Rod for allowing us to come do this from time to time. And uh, this will be the first time I think I've spoken to you since uh, I, I, I took the fall. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> when you're my age, and if you're with uh, United Healthcare, uh, each year they send you in for a wellness check. Now, a wellness check goes something like this. Uh, and generally, they ask you about how you're doing. And then they give you three words like banana, clock, and elephant. And you're supposed to remember those words. So they talk a lot more, some more information. And then they give you a piece of paper. And you're supposed to draw a clock on there, and you're supposed to put 11 o'clock on there. And then shortly after that, they ask you, what were the three words I gave you? They're testing me for cognitive disorder. Uh, I have an excuse because when I fell, I hit my head pretty hard. And so if this doesn't make sense to you this morning, blame it on my cognitive disorder. (laughs) (laughs) What I want to talk to you about, uh, maybe I I would uh, introduce it this way. Um, Thinking back over Christmas's past, maybe just overall, uh, you know, Christmas is about gift giving. What would you say is the greatest gift, the best gift you ever received, <clears throat> other than Jesus. <laughs> you went to Sunday school, because that's a typical Sunday school answer. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. You stretch it out. Would it be, I married a wonderful woman, and is a great gift to me. I have dear children and grandchildren. They're wonderful gifts to me, and they transcend any material gift I've ever received. And of course, Jesus is a wonderful person, and in one sense, he is a gift to me. But there's a gift that we all share in common, whether we're a saint or a sinner, whether we believe in Christ or not, and it's your immortal soul. Your soul is the most important gift that you have received. It's eternal. It's that God-like quality that makes you distinctively who you are and sets you apart from the rest of creation. It's that part of you that was created in the image and the likeness of God. And so I truly believe that the greatest gift I have is my soul. Now, here's what Jesus had to say about that. Jesus said, what would it profit a man or a person if he or she should gain the whole world and lose his or her own soul? And on another occasion, he said, uh, what kind of man give in exchange for his soul? And then Jesus not only put it to words, he put it in action. And the price 
that he paid for your eternal soul should suggest to us its incredible value. For we were bought with a price by the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I maintain that my greatest gift is my soul is my soul. And so that calls for a wellness check. And so I want to talk to you about the key to a prosperous new year. And primarily, I want to talk to you about the prosperity of your soul. And in a sense, it is a wellness check. And we're going to do a whole book of the Bible, except for two verses. And we're going to go to one of the little letters. I like to encourage people who are not yet Bible readers, start with the little letters. Letters like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Particularly 2nd uh, and 3rd John and Jude, they're only one chapter. About 15, 16 verses. It takes me maybe five minutes to read them. And if I want to meditate on it, I can spend a lot of time on it. So we're going to go to one of the little letters of John, John, uh, the third John. And uh, I want us to consider three thoughts, three questions that need to be answered in a wellness check of the soul. And the first is, uh, am I living the truth? Am I living is the truth of the gospel? Uh, am I living the truth of the gospel? John's interesting in, in his gospel alone, he mentions the word truth more than 20 times. And when you read the three letters of John and the book of Revelation, he mentions truth over 41 times. So truth is something that just struck the heart of John. And you know, John is an interesting study because when he writes his gospel, he never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And by saying that, he was not saying I was superior somehow to the other disciples, the other apostles, and therefore Jesus loved me more. His heart his heart had been captured by Jesus, and he was in love with the lover of his soul. And so he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm a very old man now, and I like to say, like John, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. And if you're only five years old, you could say, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. You are loved by Christ. And so it's interesting to me how John just, uh, uh, and this, this chapter, he doesn't call himself John the Apostle. He doesn't give himself any real uh, uh, a, 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 a title other than elder. He's the elder. And so it reads like this, the first four verses the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health 
as it goes well with your soul. And that's the phrase that is the topic of this sermon. His prayer is, it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth, or you're living in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So this idea of truth, you can see, is this paramount in John's mind. Now, what did Jesus have to say about truth? What did John say in the Gospels about truth? He says this in the prologue, in the first few verses of uh, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Lord. We beheld Christ full of grace and truth. Jesus then, later on, was recorded by John, and uh, he said of himself, I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. If you will feast on me, then your soul, in effect, will be nourished. So if you feast on me, I am the true bread of life. And then later on in that very text, he said, and the truth will set you free. And then on the last night with the disciples, 14th chapter, John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to me unless it's given of the Father. You can't get to the Father without coming through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was narrow in his thinking at that point. There is no other way to the Father than through Christ himself. And then, as the truth, he gave himself as a ransom on the cross. Now, pondering the idea of truth, uh, reflecting on what I know of the writings of John from the gospel, the three letters in the book of Revelation, two things come to mind. One is union with Christ, and the second is the imitation of Christ. Now, what do I mean by union with Christ? If you were to take your hand like this, and you might want to do that, just put your hand out like this. Uh, take yourself and put it in your hand. That's Jesus. Now, close your hand. You are in Christ, and Christ is in God. Get that? You are in Christ. Christ is in God. That's why Paul will write, what shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then he goes through the list of stuff. Union with Christ. You can think of union with Christ as my now nearly 64 year, yeah, that's how many, 64 years of marriage. That girl really knows me and I really know her. She knows all that's not so good about me and uh, 
the few things that are. Our lives are bound up in one another. And that's why Paul writes about the mystery of the church, the church being the bride of Christ. That's why John will talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a union. You're the bride of Christ. You're married to Christ. Christ is your husband lover if you're in the faith. So union is an incredible thing. It's an, identify, an identification with the life of Christ. He lived out the law for us, the Ten Commandments and all the extra, uh, 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 extra laws of Moses. He lived them out in perfection, which you couldn't do and which I couldn't do. And so vicariously, we are attached his perfect life. Vicariously, we are attached to his redemptive work on the cross. For when Christ died, our sins were attached to him, and he died in our place. He was our substitute. He bore our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. Jesus was our surrogate. He died in our place. And so we are bound up. We are united with him in death. death. But praise the Lord. We are bound up with him in the resurrection. And the grave couldn't hold him. Our sins cannot hold us because those whom the Son sets free, they're free indeed. And sin no longer has a legal hold over us. Satan no longer has a legal hold over us because the price of our redemption was paid at Calvary by Jesus Christ and the verification and the validation of that death was on the third day he arose again. But not only that, about 40 days later, he ascended into heaven He's at the right hand of the Father on high. He's our advocate, our mediator, our great high priest. And Paul is so bold to say that we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. That's that's amazing. Your union with Christ. The other part of that is that the Scripture teaches us that it's Christ who works in us. The Spirit of Christ works in us both to will and to do God's good pleasure. So there's an outward evidence of an inward work so that we look more and more like Jesus. That's why Peter says to the people in his day, he says, uh, you have this example, speaking of Christ, that you might follow in his steps, that you might follow in his steps. Now, in in order that you can do that, Jesus has given you the spirit of truth, his Holy Spirit who's come to live within you, and you have a divine enablement to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It was a crisis time in my life. I was about 22, maybe just 23 Our marriage was in trouble. And it wasn't because of Anita. It was because of Ron. I I tried to live in two worlds. I tried to live in the world of truth and the world of half-truth. 
The world of truth was I knew what Jesus required of me. I'd been through Bible college. I was somewhat of a burgeoning theologian at that time. I knew the doctrines of Scripture, memorized systematic theology. But there were some things out here that my conscience was troubled by. And I found myself doing things that were not Christ-honoring. And it was like God just smacked me upside of the head. And you have to decide, boy, whether you're going to be all in or not. And I'm talking to you this morning about that in the new year. I'm come, I've come to the conclusion, if you're not all in, you're not in at all. If you're not all in, you're not in at all. You're just kidding yourself. We think in terms of truth and lies and half-truths. There's no half-truth. Half-truth's a lie. Satan was good at that. Remember when he tempted Jesus? He used half-truths. And Jesus, of course, responded with the whole truth. And it's the whole truth that sets you free. It's not the half-truth that sets you free. For those whom the Son sets free, they're free indeed. But you have to understand that you are united with Christ. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. Oswald Chambers calls that the great battle. It's the Gethsemane experience of Jesus when he's facing the crucifixion. He knows what's out ahead of him. And the heavy weight of the sins of the world he's going to be bearing upon his righteous soul. He who knew no sin is becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And this pressure bearing down upon Jesus is a heavy, heavy load. And he cries out, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Three times. And each time his response was, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Every day of our lives, we're in a wrestling match between God's will and our will. Two examples in the text. There's a man by the name of Diostrophe. And down in verse 9, it says this about him. I've written something to the church about Diostrophes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So diastrophes uh, is a disaster. <clears throat> and the reason uh, he's a troublemaker is he wants to put himself first. Sunday school, we sang... Jesus and others in you, in the life of each boy and girl. Jesus and others and you. Jesus and others and you. That's the divine order of things. Jesus, other, and others and you. In your marriage, it's Jesus, others, 
in you. In the workplace, it's Jesus, others in you. At school, it's Jesus, others in you. When you look at Jesus, was that not true of him? And if I'm going to imitate Christ, will it not be Jesus, others, and you? And that's a work of grace in our lives. And then there's another name, and this guy's name is Demetrius. Uh, Beloved, verse 11, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony. Ah, he's imitating Christ. For everyone, and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So am I a diastrophe, diastrophes, or am I a Demetrius? Or am I some of both? My prayer is God, Help me to be a a, a Demetrius. Jesus, shine through me. Because I know that's the only way my soul can prosper. And I know I can be sick, but be well in soul. I can be poor, but I can be rich in soul. I can, in a sense, be friendless. And lonely. But I have friends. And I have acceptance in Christ and in the health of my soul. So is your soul healthy? There's another aspect that needs to be checked. And uh, uh, the question one might ask himself or herself, Am I loving the people of God? The regular and the irregular. Now, let me read this for you. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. In all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, I compliment our congregation because we are reflective of our senior pastor. uh, Pastor Rod is the most affirming man I've ever been around in my life. He leaks graciousness and kindness. And is the spiritual father of this church. And we his spiritual children, so to speak, reflect our Father. He's more than an adequate communicator. He's energetic. He's more energetic than the energizer buddy, uh, bunny. He's, uh, he never stops. And he's always gracious. He's always kind. And this Congregation reflects that. So when I come here to church, sometimes I'm my head's out someplace else, and it takes a while for it to arrive. And sometimes it's not exactly what I came to hear, 
But if I listen carefully, it's what I need to hear. And so we are blessed that we are a community of people who love one another. And there's nothing uh, that the enemy likes to spoil more than our bond that we have in Christ. There was a lady by the name of Joyce Landorf years ago that I listened to. She was a convention speaker, and she was kind of comedic, but she always had a lot of truth in what she had to say. And she talked about irregular clothes and how you can get them at a discount, but they don't necessarily fit right. And she said, in all of our lives, and this is true at the Christmas time especially, we come together with our relatives and some of our friends, and they're a bit irregular, They just don't fit real well. And they're traveling to us. I have found it's really easy to love the people I like. But it's very difficult to love the people I don't. And some people I just don't like. They just turn me off. But I can't use that as an excuse. Because Jesus teaches us that we're to love one another even as he loved the church and gave himself for it. So my checklist is, how am I handling the irregulars? Uh, There's a book out now that I've just finished reading, and it's entitled uh, Escaping the Enemy Mode. And the author talks about three enemy modes. There's the intelligent There's the stupid mode, and there's the simple mode. Now, he uses the idea of intelligence, not so much that you're smarter than somebody. You're just part of the CIA, the FBI. You're a scorekeeper, and you're always pointing out to people where the deficiencies are. And the stupid mode is one I fall easily into. When you point out to me that which you think I'm doing wrong, I go into stupid mode. And I get angry. I get upset. I either turn my back or I yell at you. That's just stupid. And then there's the simple mode. The simple mode is I'm an an observer out here, and I see two of you quarreling together, and I go tsk, tsk, and I stand off at And I just think, oh, they're so immature. They just need to grow up. They just need to get along with each other. And so we fall into those modes. Now, how Jesus answers that, and this is the rub of the gospel. This is the rub of the truth, of the the gospel. This is where it chafes and where it hits us in our hearts. We're to love our enemies. That's our call. Isn't that what Christ did? While we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and manifested his love to us. Now let me move on then to the last question on the checklist and how I would evaluate my soul. Am I leading the lost to Christ? 
there's something that happens in the life of any congregation. Vibrant churches are groups of people who started small, but the leadership and primarily the pastor had a great passion to win people to Christ. Usually those men and women are people who have Christ's heart and they feel it heavily. What should it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that weighs heavily. That crisis point in my life when I was 23 years old, that had just drilled down in my heart. I was putting roofs on in the day. I was working with crews. And I just got fired up about witnessing Christ. And that was before I was a pastor. And I invited the people to church. I shared Christ with everyone. And I have followed that pattern for now more than 60 years. I have a passion for lost people. God has a passion for lost people. And it's so easy for us to have wonderful, our good, our Bible study groups, our Sunday morning worship. Those are good things. They're basic things. They're necessary things. But it's so easy to get comfortable in that setting. And the problem with getting comfortable in the setting, you know what you start doing? you start nitpicking because you become ingrown. And you start to study your navel. <clears throat> and what happens is you see the faults of other people and you're always analyzing what's going on in the Bible study or the fellowship of the church, whatever. And you become a critic of the church and always trying to refine the process. Uh, that's not what God's called you to do. He's called us to come together, to be edified in the faith, so that we can go. And what does that mean? There is a biblical strategy. There's a biblical strategy for what we do. It comes all through the Bible. And I'll give you three words. We are to wait, we are to go, and we are to sin. Isaiah says, that they that wait upon the Lord, they will renew their strength. They'll mount up with the wings of his eagles, and they'll run and not grow weary, and they'll walk and they'll not faint. They wait upon the Lord. Jesus picks up on that idea, and he says to the disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. The New Testament church caught on to that idea. And so in Acts 13, they're waiting upon the Lord. They're praying and fasting, and the Spirit says, separate Paul, Saul and Barnabas for the ministry that I've called them to. They're waiting upon the Lord. They're waiting upon the Lord. They're waiting upon the Lord. And they're waiting on the Lord on the day of Pentecost. Jesus doesn't tell them to go do it now. You wait in Jerusalem until you be endued from, with power from on high. And when the Spirit of God has come upon you, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. 
It was the waiting game. And the worst, one of the hardest things is for us to wait. Listen, I've been in this church business for a long time. I've held pretty high positions in denominational life. And I've watched our strategies. We're going to go plant churches. But nobody waits on the Lord. We don't ask, God, do you want us to have a church there? We just make up our minds we'll have it there. And do you know what? About 80 to 90% of those startups fail. It's a good idea, but it's not God's idea. Paul and Silas had a good idea. Their first missionary journey took them into Asia Minor, modern, modern Turkey. And uh, they, they, they had success there. But they thought, you know, let's, let's go a farther east. But they waited upon the Lord. And a man from Macedonia appears in a dream to, to, to Paul, whose name has now been changed from Saul to Paul, and says, come over here, we need help. And so Paul and his traveling uh, partners, they go, they go to Europe, and the gospel comes to Europe because they waited upon the Lord. In the new year, if you want to have a prosperous soul and have an effective witness for Christ, it will not happen unless you wait upon the Lord. Jesus is still saying, look, the fields are white unto harvest. There's a a harvest to be reaped, but we can't see it if we don't wait upon the Lord because our natural eyes are blinded and we need to have the Spirit of God open our eyes to the field that God's calling us to. For your students... Your students, that's your school. For your athletes, that's the team you, you play, play with. In your workaday world, that's the people around you. It's your next-door neighbors. It's people you even meet in the supermarket, and you say, hi, how's your day going? And you might pause for a minute and say, I hope it's going well. I can tell you people will respond to that they'll sometimes give you way more information than you're asking for. But they find out that you care. You care about their souls. So after you wait, then you go. And we can all go someplace. It might be just next door. Or it may we go to Facebook. And there's a lot of folks on Facebook doing a lot of preaching nowadays, I notice. You can text people. There's all kinds of ways that you can communicate the gospel to the people that you care about. You go to people that you care about. You don't go to show them how bad they are. You And waiting upon the Lord, your heart is caught up in a love for them and a compassion for them. And you have God's heart the heart that loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And there are times when we may not be able to go, but we can send. And so that's what Paul says in the the 10th chapter of Romans. He says, uh, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But how can they call? if they've not heard. 
And how can they hear if there's no preacher? You're all preachers. You're preaching one way or another. What I'm doing, I'm just talking to you. All, all our, we live out the proclamation of the gospel, either well or not so well, but we're living it out. So you're, you're an ordained minister because you're in Christ. You're an ordained preacher because you're in Christ. And you are a living letter that people read. And so we send. We send out. And that was the situation in this church. And so let me read these last couple of verses and we'll be done. In the middle of the sixth verse, it says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of a God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for truth. I think of Taps. Uh, I think of Jim and his work at Hope's. Zamberdu uh, and, and Taps in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. <clears throat> so what we do? But maybe we can do more. <laughs> maybe we can do more. Maybe as our souls prospers, our pri- prosper, our priorities will change, and our primary investment might be investing in the lives of those who don't know yet know Christ. So I hope this message is somewhat challenging to you. It is a wellness check. Am I living the truth of the gospel? Am I loving the people of God? And am I leading the lost to Christ? I guarantee you this. If you do those three things, you'll have a prosperous new year. Even if you fall and bang your head and break your neck, you'll still have a prosperous new year.